Well, this morning as we continue in Isaiah, we're in Isaiah chapters 61 and 62. Uh, 61 and 62 are going to continue to tell us about the great future that God has prepared for us. Last week in Isaiah 60, we saw how God is planning a great city that he is building and that is the destination of everyone who loves him, who trusts in his son. And this week, we hear a little bit more about this great city that God is building. In particular, we hear about the character of the people that dwell in the city. So we'll read uh, two samples from Isaiah 61 and 62. Elisa will come and read for us the first three verses of Isaiah 61. And then Nate will come for us and read for us the end of Isaiah 61 and the first five verses of um, Isaiah 62. Uh, Then Joshua will come up for us and read for us from Luke 4. And in Luke 4, Jesus himself is actually quoting Isaiah 61, saying that this is what I have come to do. This is the future that I have come to bring about. So we'll read that passage from Luke 4. And then finally, Moira will come up and read for us from Romans 8, which again tells us of the fulfillment in Jesus Christ of all that has been promised here in Isaiah 61 and 62. And so with that, uh, Elisa, if you'd like to come forward and begin our reading in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees, planted by the Lord to glorify him. Isaiah 61, verse 10 through 62, verse 5. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a pride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and in, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Luke four fourteen to 21 And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Romans 8, 2-4 For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, so far in Isaiah, we have seen much talk of sin and judgment, and we have seen much talk of God's salvation. In fact, last week we saw what to my mind is a surprisingly glorious picture of God's salvation. A city that God is building from every nation on earth where God himself will be present and he will empower his people to build up this city with all of their diverse talents and resources and it will become the most glorious city in all of human history. Indeed, this city will outlast human history and it will be an eternal city that God himself will dwell in the midst of his people and be their God. This is the glorious salvation that God is preparing for all who trust in him. Yet, as has continually been the case in Isaiah, and as we see throughout the scriptures, this question of salvation, of this great promise that God has for us, cannot be answered without the question of sin being answered. Because the only reason, ultimately, why people need salvation in the first place, remember salvation just means rescue or deliverance, the only reason why we need rescue in the first place is because our sins have landed us in hot water. It's because our sins have brought death to our lives, brought destruction to our world, and because of that, we need salvation. And so God can promise a great salvation all he wants, but if we are sinful and cannot enter into the salvation, then whatever salvation God promises is no good to us. It doesn't do us any benefit. And so the question is, is this great salvation that God promises of this future glorious city that will last forever, is that really for us? Can sinners like us enter into that city? Now, I hope you see that setting it up in this way shows how important these concepts of sin and salvation are. I think so often, maybe when we get too used to church or we just get too used to religious language, these ideas of sin and salvation can just come across as some type of spiritual talk that don't really connect to our heartbeats. They don't really connect to our lives day to day. It seems to exist somewhere up here, but not in the practicalities of our lives. In fact, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, my guess is that when you hear me talk about things like sin or salvation, Jesus, rescue, 
all of these things, you probably think that I and other people like me are a little bit off my rocker. Maybe if you're generous, then you're glad that I've found something that works for me, but it's just not for you. You don't really see what the big deal is. You think Jesus is just someone that lived a couple thousand years ago. Sin is just a a word that religious people use to make you feel guilty. Salvation is just some weird idea about going to heaven when you die. But the argument that I want to place before you this morning, that the prophet Isaiah himself places before us again and again, is that these concepts, concepts of sin and salvation, speak to the very depths of our soul. They are the most fundamental questions for us to ask, the most important things we could ever think about, the most important things we could consider, the only things that are worth building our lives upon. If we don't consider these things, if we don't consider what is sin, what is salvation, if we don't figure out these so-called religious things, then we're destined to live a life that is shallow, that is filled with triviality, and therefore we're ultimately destined to an unhappy and trivial life. And Christian, this even applies to you on a daily basis. Do you see living for Jesus is only a part of your life? At worst, do you see it as something that you simply kind of focus on once a week? You know, when you come to church on Sunday morning, that's where you get your spiritual fix. But, you know, the rest of your life, you have other concerns that you have to think about those other things. Or rather, do you see spirituality, the the things of God, to be the very meat for your soul, the way that you get through each day? By understanding how God has dealt with your sin and how he's offered you salvation. And then these ideas are what give hope to your life. What what enable you to get through each and every day. I'm not trying to say that the more mundane things of life, like going to the grocery store and doing your job and things like this are unimportant or that you shouldn't attend to them. Of course, we do have to attend to these other things. But the point is that the things of God are so far more important than all of these things that we must make it our first work each day to be right with the Lord with regard to these things. And only from that does goodness in the rest of our life spring. There can be no greater hope that we have than this glorious city that God is building. And if we are not going to that city, that means we are ending in destruction. And if we are ending in destruction, then what does this life matter anyways? And so we should set our eyes on that city and ask ourselves the question daily, am I on the journey to get to that city? And if we are not, then nothing else matters. And if we are, then that should give hope to everything we do each day because we know our destination and we know where we are going. And so please don't just dismiss these words of sin and salvation and judgment as just being some type of religious talk. No, this is what our lives are to be about. And the more we understand these things and treasure these things, the more depth our souls will have, the more depth our lives will have, the more we will know deep joy and happiness. And so in Isaiah chapters 61 and 62, Isaiah answers this question of can sinners like us enter into this eternal city that God is building? And Isaiah's answer is a resounding yes, this city is for you. It's for sinners. But 
The remarkable thing about his answer is that it's not for sinners in their sinfulness. It's that God actually has a plan to rescue us from sin itself so that then we can be a part of this city. God will not let anything impure, unclean, or sinful come into the city. So you must be righteous in order to come into the city. But God has a plan to make us righteous. Now in Isaiah, how this was going to happen is very mysterious. We only see kind of general outlines about how God is going to make a people righteous so that they can enter into the city. And so what I want to do this morning is first look at the the big picture ideas that Isaiah gives us, but then I want to turn to the New Testament to look in detail how these promises in Isaiah are fulfilled. How is it that God actually makes a righteous people? Whenever we're reading the Old Testament, we must always remember that it does carry the very same message as the New Testament, right? The Old Testament doesn't tell us of one God and the New Testament tells us of another God. No, the message of the Old and New Testaments are united. And therefore, one way I often like to think of the New Testament is kind of like the answer key to the Old Testament. You know, I don't know if in your school days you had like a math textbook where you could flip to the back and, you know, then it had all the answers or the questions in the textbook. Well, that's kind of like this scripture that God's given to us. We have an Old Testament that's filled with many images and, again, these big picture things that we don't always understand, but he's given us this New Testament so we can flip to it and then we can go back to the Old and we can say, ah, Lord, now I see what you were doing there. And it's a perfect case of that happening here in Isaiah 61 and 62. We see this glorious proclamation about what God is going to do, but we're left with these enormous questions about how can this be? What does all this mean? And then we can flip to the New Testament and we can see, Lord, now I see how you're going to fulfill all that you wrote in Isaiah 61 and 62. So first I want to look at Isaiah's promises to us. In Isaiah 61 and 62, sorry, God's promises to us in Isaiah 61 and 62. And then after that, I want to flip in particular to the book of Romans, and we're going to see how these promises in Isaiah are fulfilled, especially as explained by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. So first, Isaiah's promise. There are three promises that we're going to look at in Isaiah, and then again, we're going to see in more detail how these three promises are fulfilled in the New Testament. So Isaiah gives three big promises that give Israel, that give all of mankind hope that we can actually be a part of this eternal city that God is building. There are three hints as to how our sins will be dealt with. Or you could say three reasons why we don't need to fear our sins keeping us out of God's great future. So the first promise that is given to us, the first thing we're told that can ease our minds with regard to our entrance into this city is that the Messiah will liberate people from sin. The Messiah will liberate people from sin. We see this in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. We read it just before the message. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, At first, the the figure described here, it just says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who is this me? Again, this figure is somewhat mysterious. It's hard to know who he is. 
And yet this figure has been introduced before in Isaiah. In 61.1, in particular when he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, or the Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. We have seen a character described three times before when he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that figure is always just called the Servant of the Lord in Isaiah. Or you could call him the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One. That's what the second line in verse 1 says, because the Lord has anointed me. So this is someone who is chosen by God. So someone who is chosen by God, filled with God's Spirit, and what is he chosen to do? It says to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now at first that doesn't sound like it's talking about sin, does it? It sounds like it's just talking about maybe a more generic political act, right? Serving the poor, binding up broken hearts, captives, opening the prison, right? These are all much more physical images. And yet, when we come to verse 3, we start to see hints that maybe this is something more than just some kind of physical deliverance that the Messiah is going to bring. So in verse 3 of Isaiah 61, it says, "...to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning." the garment of praise instead of a spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. And so somehow this work that the Messiah is doing to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening prisons, all of this is toward the end of building or creating oaks of righteousness. And I think there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament, even apart from what we see in the New Testament, that sin itself was often pictured as a slave master. That sin was something that people needed liberation from. And so even though I do believe that Christ is eager to do the the physical work of proclaiming liberty to captives and opening of prisons, and those are good physical actions for us to take in Jesus' name, more deeply what the Messiah is doing and what we ourselves should be about is liberty from the slave master of sin. And so the Messiah is coming to build oaks of righteousness, and he builds oaks of righteousness by proclaiming freedom from sin. Now again, here in Isaiah, that's kind of all we get. We wonder, how, how can this happen? How can somebody be liberated from sin? And we're going to turn to Romans in a bit to see how that happens. But that is the first promise that we see in Isaiah, that the Messiah will liberate people from sin, and therefore we will be able to enter into the city. The second promise we're given in Isaiah is that God's people will be given a righteous status or standing. God's people will be given a righteous status or standing. We see this in Isaiah 61, verse 10 in particular. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now, notice those phrases, garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. Now, a a garment or a robe is not something that is intrinsic to you, right? It is something that you put on. 
It is something other than yourself that somehow covers your own body. To say that he has clothed me is different than saying he has made me into something else. We use clothes to cover up what we actually are. And Isaiah promises that this will, in a sense, happen with righteousness itself. Righteousness will somehow be made into a garment that people can then put on. So it's not saying that the people themselves are righteous. It's saying that the people have something to cover them that is righteous, so that they appear righteous, even if they themselves may not be righteous. Again, this is something that's very hard to understand, simply looking at the Old Testament. How could this promise possibly be fulfilled? But Isaiah clearly promises that one day, righteousness itself will be made a garment that people can put on and that will cover them, and therefore they will be able to enter into this eternal city. The third promise that we see in Isaiah is that God's people will display righteousness to the world by God's power. God's people will display righteousness to the world by God's power. We see this especially in 61.11 and through the second verse of chapter 62. It says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. So the metaphor for what God is doing is given for us in Isaiah 61, 11 itself. It's the metaphor of a garden. A garden causes things to sprout up and to grow, right? Because it has good soil, because somebody tends to it and waters it. In the same way, God is saying that I myself will keep a garden. And what does God grow in this garden? What sprouts up from this garden? It says, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. And so somehow God is going to cultivate a garden, a a group of people wherein he himself is at work as the gardener so that righteousness will actually spring up from those people. Now, these are glorious promises that Isaiah gives to us. And again, if we were left only with the words of Isaiah, we probably would be wondering, how can the Lord possibly cause people that don't want to be righteous to, be, to act in a righteous way? How could the Lord possibly dress people who are not righteous in righteousness? How can the Messiah, how can somebody who is not me, possibly make me righteous? And these are the questions that are answered for us as we turn to the New Testament. And again, recall that these questions are not just some academic exercise. This isn't just religious information. Maybe you're here this morning and you are discouraged in your fight with sin. The message for us in these texts is that you can take heart because Jesus is able to give you victory in the battle. Or maybe you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, but you don't really take your battle with sin very seriously. Well, this text is here to tell us that, look, the main battle that God is bringing about in your life is the battle against sin. 
And so if you consider yourself a Christian, you must be waging war against sin because this is what the Messiah does when he comes into your life as he wages war against your sin. Or maybe you're here and you think, well, God's given me great victory over my sin. And you're tempted to give yourself a little pat on the back and recognize how much better you are than other people. Well, this text is here to say that it is not your own power that's given you any kind of victory over your sin. It is the power of God at work in you. So how could you be proud? How could you think little of other people when it is not you yourself who've won any victory? It is God at work in you. And so you see these questions that Isaiah is prompting and that the New Testament is answering are questions that affect our very hearts and souls. And so we, as Christians, must understand these things to know how to go about the fight for righteousness in our daily lives and so that we do not become proud or hard-hearted. And so let's see now in the New Testament how... Does the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, actually fulfill these promises? Now again, I said we're going to look at the answers to this from the book of Romans, so I encourage you to turn there now. First, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, and then we're going to actually jump back to 5 and then 4 to 7, so it's a little bit out of order. But I just encourage you to turn to Romans 6 because we are going to be looking at particular passages there. And so the first promise we were given in Isaiah was that The Messiah is going to liberate us from sin. The Messiah is going to liberate us from sin. And so we have this question, how is it that Jesus does that? How does Jesus liberate us from sin? So I want to, in particular, look at Romans chapter 6, and this is verses 5 to 7. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So first, notice that language, enslaved to sin, set free from sin. This is the very language of Isaiah 61. Is it not to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound? And here is the Apostle Paul talking about us no longer being enslaved to sin, but instead being free from sin. And so the picture that is being given to us is that sin is a sort of slavery. Now, I know that if you are a human being and you are here this morning, then you have experienced the slavery of sin. The slavery of sin, as I understand it, is essentially talking about our natural proclivity to sin that we cannot avoid, that we cannot seem to ever get rid of. And again, I know that we all have experienced this. Sometimes our proclivity to sin, our our bent towards sin, just astounds me and boggles my mind. I mean, just take an easy example like someone who's trying to go on a diet. Now, when you go on a diet, you typically do that because you know that that going on a diet is going to be good for you. And that's, that's why you do it in the first place. And so you know that if you keep this diet, you're going to be healthier, you're going to feel better, you're going to have more energy. So you have all these rewards in mind. And so you know very clearly in your heart that the diet is right and you yourself are choosing to go on this diet. Nevertheless, As all of us have experienced, as soon as some food crosses your plate that you really like, that maybe is outside of your diet, you suddenly find yourself just unable to resist the temptation. 
Even though you yourself plan this diet, even though you yourself know all the benefits, you see something appetizing in front of you and you say, well, I can cheat this one time. Or I can, I can get away with this. And so you break your diet and you indulge. Well, why do you do that? You do that because you are a slave to sin. You are a slave to your appetites. Now, of course, a diet is a very trivial example, but think of more serious examples. You have an opportunity to resist sexual temptation and to honor your wife. And instead, for some strange reason, the the evil of illicit sex still seems appealing to you. Why does it seem appealing when it is so naturally just gross and abhorrent? You have an opportunity to, to tell the truth and just be honest, and people will think that you're just a normal person. But instead, the option of exaggerating in order to impress people and make them think that you're much better than you really are just seems so irresistible that you just stretch the truth a little bit because you want them to to think well of you. Or you have the option of honoring God with your time and seeking him first and meeting with him in the word and in prayer. And instead, some new TV show that was made last week seems more compelling to you. There are so many examples of how we are just bent towards sinful things, how sinful things always seem to be more desirable than the good things, than the things of God. This is what it means to be a slave to sin. Is that the the beauty of ugly things seems more compelling than the beauty of beautiful things. We are chained in this way. Slavery enlists us in a certain way of living and thinking, and it gives us no option of escape. So how does Jesus break these chains of slavery? How does he break the way that we are habituated into the wrong and that we are resistant to the right? Well, he dies. So Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It is clear, is it not, that a slave belongs to his master only as long as he is alive? Once a slave dies, the master can no longer claim to own him. He is dead, right? Death is freedom. There are many movies where some person on the run has to convince others that he is dead so that he can move on to some sort of life of freedom. As long as we are alive, the master, the slave master of sin, will be hounding us. So there is only one solution to escape this master. Convince this master that we have died, that we are no longer alive. Therefore, the slave master can no longer claim ownership over us. Romans 6 tells us that we experienced that death when Christ died upon the cross. How do we do that? Well, the most immediate answer given in Romans 6 is through baptism, right? When we are baptized, we are being united to Christ in his death. We are saying that we have died. We no longer have a slave master of sin. But even more immediate than that to us, day-to-day is an action that you can take in your heart right now or any time, and that is that you can reckon yourself dead to sin and united to Christ. Romans 6 verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is what faith is. When temptation comes knocking at your door, what will you do? What will you say? Will you still live in the identity where you are a slave to sin and it's impossible for you to resist it? Or will you tell that sin, sorry, I've died. I'm I'm no longer alive. You no longer have ownership over me. I no longer have any service to give you because I am dead. It is when we reckon ourselves dead with Christ that we experience liberation from the slave master that is sin. And so if you are a Christian, you must understand that you have been liberated from sin by being united to Christ in his death. And so you no longer are a slave. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we as Christians will no longer feel any desire for sin. We have an old nature that is still warring in our hearts, that is still calling us back to the slavery of sin. But as long as we claim to be in Christ, we will continue to look to Christ and we will continue to look to his death and we will continue to reckon ourselves as dead to sin in Christ Jesus. And by doing that, we will experience liberation from the slave master that is sin. So that is how the Messiah, how Jesus Christ liberates us from sin. As he dies, he offers us union with him so that we ourselves die. And then we are no longer slaves to sin. Now the second promise. We have been given a righteous standing. Again, Isaiah 61 and 62 talking about being given a garment of salvation, a robe of righteousness. Now, how does that happen? How can we be given this righteous clothing when we ourselves are not righteous? I would encourage you to turn back to Romans 5. I want to look at Romans 5, verses 17 to 19. So Romans 5, starting in verse 17, it says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, now notice that phrase, free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. By one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Or again, as verse 17 says, the free gift of righteousness. Now the idea that is being explained in these verses is that by virtue of our own sin and our forefathers' sin, we are now under the righteous wrath of God. The way that God has chosen to resolve this problem is not mainly by cleaning us up and making us acceptable in his sight. Rather, it is mainly by crediting to us the righteousness of another, by giving to us as a free gift, as it says here, the status, the appearance, the righteousness of another. In other words, it is not our own performance that makes our standing before God. It is entirely what Luther called an alien righteousness, something that comes from someone else. 
When we one day stand before God and have to give an answer for the life we lived, what will our plea be on that day? Will our plea be anything that we have done? If it is, then we will surely fall because all of our works are as filthy rags. But praise the Lord that he has given us another option. He says that you can stand before me in your own filthy rags or you can receive from me this beautiful garment that I have made for you as a free gift. Which would you like? Your own filthy rags or the perfect robe of Jesus Christ? You see, if our righteousness is in Jesus Christ, if he is our beautiful garment, then that means that our status, our standing, is not in ourselves. We must choose one or the other. We can find our identity and significance in Jesus, in which case we get his very record for ourselves, or we can work for our own status and significance, in which case God will let us have that as our identity and we will fall. But Jesus is one whole and seamless garment. You cannot simply take a part of him, the part that you think you need, to cover your nakedness. You can't just take the arms off the robe. No, you either take the whole robe, you either take all of Jesus Christ as you're standing, or you take none of him. Those are your only two options. But if you take all of him, then you will have a garment that is more beautiful than anything the world has ever seen. And yes, you will lose yourself. You have to give up your own identity. You have to give up your own claim on your life. But you will receive a much better treasure than anything you have left behind in getting Jesus' own righteousness for yourself. And so that is how God will fulfill the promise of giving us a robe of righteousness is by making the Messiah himself righteous and then offering to us identity in the Messiah as a free gift. And then finally, the third promise that we saw in Isaiah 61 and 62, that God will work practical righteousness in his people that is then displayed to the world. How will this come about? How will God make a people who are naturally prone to sin Live a life of righteousness. And here I want to go to Romans 7. So if you'd flip forward to Romans 7. How is it that the Lord produces righteousness in us through Jesus Christ? Now, Romans 5, 6, and 7 all have their own internal logic, and it's not my purpose this morning to show how the logic of Romans itself works, but rather to show you how Romans 5, 6, and 7 tell us of the fulfillment of Isaiah 62 and 63. So in Romans 7, beginning in verse 1 and going down to verse 6, it says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So I've already spoken of how Christ's death means freedom from the slave master of sin. But here in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul takes it one step further. Death not only frees us from the slave master of sin, it also frees us from marriage. Now, why would it matter that death frees us from marriage? Well, Romans 7.4 gives us the answer. Romans 7.4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So that's why it matters that we have died and any previous marriage we have is over because now that means that we can be joined to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. We have been liberated from one marriage. Maybe that liberation is from marriage to law, as it was for the Jewish people. Or maybe that liberation was liberation from idols that you served before coming to the Lord. But you have been liberated from that master so that you can be joined to another. And now that you have been joined to another, you can now bear fruit for God. Now, when you see those words bear fruit in Romans 7, 4, your mind is supposed to go to thinking about children, right? Children are the fruit of marriage. God is essentially saying, I want to marry you. I want to free you from all previous marriages so that I can marry you, so that in our marriage, we can bear fruit. And what are the children that God desires? What is the fruit that God seeks? The fruit is holiness and righteousness. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things the scripture teaches us. And Romans 7, 6 kind of puts a bow on it. It says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit. This is what it means to be married to the Lord. God, the Spirit within us. No longer the old way of the written code, just reading a book and trying to follow it, but now having the Spirit of God set in our hearts through union with Him so that we can obey Him from the heart. So what Jesus did when he died and when we, by faith, receive his death as ours is he severed us from all other lovers so that we could now be ravished with God alone, so that we could now be married to God. And if we are married to God, then we will have children, we will bear fruit. And this is exactly where Isaiah himself goes. In Isaiah 62, if you want to turn back to Isaiah, Isaiah 62 and verses 2 to 5. It says, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. 
For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so, beloved, it is as we come to know this delight that the Lord takes in us through Jesus Christ, and as as we ourselves come to delight in Him, to call Him our wonderful bridegroom, that fruit begins to be produced in our lives and we are actually able to live lives of righteousness. Again, not by our own power, not by our own strength, not by willpower or by tips and tricks, but rather by union with the triune God. And so, beloved, marriage is offered you because you have been divorced by death from all other lovers and you have been united to God and so know the Lord. Press into the Lord, and through knowing the Lord, you will know practical freedom from sin. You will know joy in your heart. You will know the very thing that you were made for. You will get a foretaste of this divine city that is coming. And beloved, if we have such great promises, we should take the posture that is described for us in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. It says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. Beloved, if we have such great promises, let's not give up hope. Let's be like set as watchmen on the walls looking for the fulfillment of all of these promises that God has given to us. If you find yourself stuck and mired in sin this morning, don't give up. Rather, look to the Lord's promises and say, Lord, you promise that you will make me righteous, that you will be married to me, and through this marriage you will give me righteousness. I will not rest until your promises come about. Your word says in Isaiah 62 that the righteousness of Jerusalem will burn forth to all the nations and say, Lord, I don't want to rest until my righteousness, the righteousness of our church is shining forth to this city. We give the Lord no rest until his promises come. You see, beloved, this is not mainly about our work and about what we can do. This is mainly about what God has promised and what God himself will fulfill. And so, beloved, this is why I encourage you to continue to look forward to the promises of God. I encourage you to come to our early morning prayer. I encourage you to come to our Sunday evening prayer where we seek the Lord and say, Lord, give me all of these promises that you have spoken that we may know the city that you are building and the righteousness that you have provided. Beloved, these promises are for all of us who will, by faith, come to Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you right now to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust that the Lord can make true of you here now all that he has promised through the prophet Isaiah. Let's turn to the Lord now in prayer. We can open and just praying with regard to the message that I just gave. And then from there, I'll transition us into praying for concerns around the world that I also invite you to join me in praying for. Would you go to the Lord with me now? Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you for your incredible promises of what you will do for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled so many of those promises already in Jesus Christ and that we have yet more promises that we are yet looking forward to. 
Lord, would you give us eyes to continue to look forward to those promises and to lay hold of them and to give you no rest until they come. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Would you hear our prayers now?